0: Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to Acts chapter 7, and we'll be taking a, a, a second look at this uh, really amazing sermon that Stephen gives uh, before the, the Sanhedrin uh, since he's on trial for his ministry. So we'll be looking at uh, Acts chapter 7 again, and let me remind you again the context In chapter 6, verse 13 and 14, uh, Stephen has been falsely accused of committing two great sins. So we read in verse 13, and they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place, the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. So last time we were in Acts 7, we saw where Stephen basically defended the attack that he had blasphemed the temple. And basically what we saw last time is that he he made it clear through his message in a very subtle and a soft way that God's presence in the Old Testament was not confined to any one holy place. Uh, In fact, for the first 1,000 years of the history of the Abrahamic covenant, God had appeared in many, many places throughout the known world. He appeared to Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees. He appeared to him up in Haran. He appeared to him in Hebron, which is in the land of Canaan. But then God also appeared to Joseph in Egypt, Moses in Egypt, Moses on Mount Sinai, Moses in the wilderness, that God's presence is manifested all over the place so that wherever God is, that's the holy place. So even at the burning bush, when God told Moses to take off your shoes because you're on holy ground, that's holy ground apart from the holy temple or the holy city of Jerusalem. So wherever God is, that's where His true temple is. And then, of course, Stephen concluded with that uh, quote from Isaiah at the end of this sermon when he says, uh, where God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool of my feet. No mere man-made house can contain me, basically is what God says. And the problem with the Jews, and particularly the Sanhedrin, as they had begun to worship the temple more than they worshiped God. They had made an idol out of the temple. And all of the ceremonials, that, that, uh, the Levitical ceremonial law and the worship, they had put their trust in the temple. Now because the temple was there, they were in good standing with God, and they had God's favor. But of course, all of this was a deception and a delusion. Because Christ had prophesied that within one generation that temple would be torn down. And the reason it was going to be torn down, that temple building that the Jews had begun to idolize and put a false confidence and trust in is because God would send down His true temple from heaven. Where God the Son would dwell not in a building made by man, but in a human body in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That is God's true dwelling place. God's true temple. And what did they do to God's true temple? They crucified Him. They rejected Him. So within one generation, within 40 years, God would tear down the building of the temple because it's no longer where you meet to worship God. You now go to Jesus Christ. He's the true temple of the living God. So Stephen uh, began to had worked through that and dealt with that issue, and we saw that the last time. But now there's another charge that he has to uh, to deal with, and that is the second charge that he has blasphemed Moses and the law of God, and that Christ was going to alter the customs handed down to them by Moses. Now again, there's an element of truth here, isn't there? Because when Jesus Christ came and brought the new covenant, He fulfilled the shadows of the old covenant law, particularly the ceremonial law. All of the sacrificial system, much of the worship system, all pointed forward to Jesus Christ. So that when Christ came, all of the shadows of the law now are ready to to disappear from the scene. They're no longer needed. Once Christ has come, all that they pointed to, all they were the shadow of, has now been fulfilled, never to be repeated again. So, there's a truth in the fact that when Christ came, He would alter the customs handed down from Moses. Because that whole ceremonial law would no longer be a part of the worship of the church. Because they knew that Christ was now the true Lamb of God, the true sacrifice, whose blood alone could atone for their sins, never the blood of of animals. So what we're going to see in this uh, sermon again is that Stephen will again trace through the history of Israel. And in doing so, he will basically point out two things. That number one, He has not blasphemed Moses. He gives Moses all the honor that he is is worthy of. And secondly, basically, it is the Sanhedrin that has disobeyed God. Not Him. And they have disobeyed the law of God. Not Stephen. And we're going to see those two threads are going to be uh, kind of woven throughout this, this message. Let me begin by pointing out what he says in chapter 7. We'll just kind of skip through this sermon this time since we read it in full uh, last time. But look, for example, at verse 6. Stephen says that God spoke to this effect, and this he's speaking to Abraham, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years and whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. So Stephen begins by, by reviewing the history that the descendants of Abraham would be persecuted by a Gentile nation, the Egyptians. And they would be held in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. And this kind of sets the spiritual standard of paganism. That they persecute the people of God. Okay? That's what Gentiles do. They reject the God of Scripture. They reject the God. When they persecute God's chosen people. And so he he begins that way because as we see through the rest of the sermon, he's now going to transition to the idea that it's no longer the Egyptians that are persecuting God's people. It's God's people that are persecuting God's people. It's really the Israel of the flesh that begins to persecute Israel according to the Spirit. And it's really the the Jews that become in effect like spiritual Gentiles who are guilty of persecuting the remnant, the true Israel within the nation, and so he begins to he sets the initial standard of pagan Gentiles persecute God's people, the Egyptians persecuted Israel, but then he starts making this transition that that's exactly what you Jews are now doing to the true believers and followers of Jesus Christ the Messiah. You're persecuting. And that's always been your history. And that's what you're doing now in light of Jesus Christ. And so he begins to to, uh, to trace these ideas uh, through the Old Testament. And then he'll, he'll start preaching at them here in a little bit. So we see uh, that clearly, just uh, in light of this, that the Scriptures teach... That there is a remnant within Israel according to God's gracious choice. Romans eleven five. 5. Uh, Paul referred to this in Romans 9, verse 6. When he said there is an Israel within Israel. What does that mean? There is an Israel within Israel. There is a true spiritual Israel within the outer physical nation of Israel. That's what... That phrase means in Romans 9, 6. That is the true remnant. They are the true seed of Abraham. The spiritual seed of Abraham. To whom all the covenant promises will be fulfilled. Ultimately because we are related to Jesus Christ. The seed of the Abrahamic covenant. But there is a remnant within the nation of Israel. And the unbelieving element of Israel. And sadly through Israel's history. The nation of Israel has predominantly been a nation of unbelievers and idolaters. Just read through their history in the Old Testament. Comes out very, very clear. But the unbelieving element, the Israel after the flesh, the unregenerate Israelites have been guilty throughout their history of persecuting God's true spiritual Israel. The true believers, the prophets within the nation. So they actually become and act like spiritual Gentiles. Though they're Jews, they're outwardly Jews, inwardly they're pagans. Because they react in the same way they persecute God's true Israel. The true believers within the nation. And that's what he's going to trace through. And then he's going to tell the Sanhedrin before whom he's preaching, that's you. You're doing exactly the same thing as your fathers did. Paul says that though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it's the remnant that will be saved. The Israel within the nation of Israel, the true spiritual Israel made up of believers. And so uh, Stephen again will uh, use their own history to show them that he does not blaspheme Moses but gives him the honor he deserves. And secondly, that the Sanhedrin are acting like their fathers, acting like pagans and Gentiles in persecuting God's true remnant. So let's, uh, let's begin to walk through this and see how he develops these themes. Look at verse 9. See, Egypt had been persecuting uh, the Israelites, or will be in this uh, record. But look at what he says in verse 9. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, yet God was with him. So before, Stephen had said, okay, God told Abraham that the Egyptians are going to persecute you. And then he starts picking up how that's also being carried out by the physical Jews. The patriarchs. Who are the patriarchs? Well, in this context, they are the brothers of Joseph. And how do they respond to Joseph? The true Israel, if you will. They become jealous. And they sold him into slavery into Egypt. So now this is Jew on Jew. This is a physical Jew persecuting the one to whom the covenant is made and will be carried forward. The one to whom God gave these incredible dreams... The one whom God would exalt and actually become a deliverer of His brothers and of His people and many others as He's elevated to the right hand of Pharaoh. And yet they had rejected Him. They had become jealous of Him. They had sold Him into slavery. Let's see how He goes on to defend these uh, different accusations against Him. Look at verse 20. It was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God. Now that doesn't sound like he was dishonoring Moses. It doesn't sound like he was blaspheming Moses. He's saying when Moses was born, he was lovely in the sight of God. He had God's favor. He's not blaspheming Moses. So he he's he's gradually showing in very subtle ways that he has not been guilty of of uh, breaking the law or blaspheming Moses. Like these false uh, accusers had brought forward. Look at verse 22. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. And he was a man of power in words and deeds. So Stephen reminds that. Look how blessed Moses was by God. He was highly educated. He was a man of power. Both in words and also in actions. See how God had blessed Moses. So Stephen is not in any way undermining Moses. Look at verse 25 through 28. We find that Moses was was also, like Joseph, was misunderstood and rejected by his brethren. Look at verse 25. And he, Moses, supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand and on the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you're a brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? And the very way he said that, he was attacking Moses... He was threatening Moses to basically turn him over to the the law, if you will. And so in doing this, they not only understood that God was raising up Moses to deliver them, they rejected His authority over them. That's a Jew on Jew. These are not pagan Gentiles doing this. This is Israel according to the flesh, persecuting God's chosen Moses' servant. Servant of the Lord. And then we go on and we read uh, that uh, Moses had this burning bush experience in verse 30 through 34. Again, where Stephen is emphasizing how, how blessed Moses was, how privileged Moses was. He says in verse 30 that after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him. Again, this is Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in the flame of a burning thorn bush. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground." I have certainly seen the the, the oppression of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. So Stephen is rehearsing this incredible manifestation of God's presence to Moses. He's not in any way blaspheming Moses. See, that's what he's kind of defending. He is elevating, he is honoring Moses as is appropriate. And so, this great accusation that he has spoken against Moses and spoken against the law basically is a trumped up false false, uh, charge. We go on and read next, for example, that in verse 35, that this very Moses that the Jews had disowned, God made to be a ruler and a deliverer. Look at verse 35. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. So again, Stephen is accurately portraying Moses as the great God-anointed leader of, of Israel, who would be Israel's ruler and deliver, bring them out from under the bondage of Egypt. That He would be the great Savior, if you will, physically speaking, of the nation. And of course, in that way, Moses becomes a tremendous type of Jesus Christ. As Moses delivered Israel out of the, the bondage and slavery of Egypt, so Christ delivers His people out of the bondage and slavery of Satan and, and sin, And as He brought about this great deliverance through offering the blood of the Passover lamb. So Jesus Christ becomes the true Passover lamb who saves His people by the shedding of His own blood. Many parallels between Moses and the Lord Jesus Christ. And probably, maybe, make up my mind, probably or maybe, Stephen had had preached that in some of his messages around the temple compound. Maybe these Jewish leaders, these Sanhedrin people, had heard him make that connection before. So even bringing it up, even though he doesn't launch into preaching on Christ, which he certainly could have, they may have sensed the, the underlying truth and, and what, uh, what Moses was representing here. We go on and we read in verse... Uh, 36, that this man led them out performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So now there's Stephen again is saying look at Moses, a man of God, a man whom God showed His power through so that Moses did signs and wonders not only in Egypt through the ten plagues, But in dividing the Red Sea and and God used Moses as a a mechanism, a vehicle for, for the manna and the water from the rock and the provision through the 40 years of the wilderness wandering. Look at how God had anointed and blessed this man Moses. So again, the accusation that he's blaspheming Moses or the law is a false accusation. Again, Stephen continues to defend himself against that. And then we look at verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Who is that prophet? Jesus Christ. So here Stephen again reviews for them uh, this revelation that God gave to Moses that later on their Messiah would come and he would be like a second Moses. And he would be raised up and be like Moses in what he does in delivering his people out from under their slavery and their sin. So again, he, they may have heard him preach that in some earlier sermons. And that may have again tweaked their minds to stir up some anger within their hearts as they're listening to him recount some of these great uh, historical truths of, of Israel's history. And then we read, for example, in verse 38... This is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who is with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. So now Moses receives the law of God. Again, Stephen is, is rejoicing in that. He's delighting in it. He's certainly not undermining Moses in any way. He's celebrating that he received living oracles, the living Word of God from the Lord. Moses received the law of God. So again, this is something where he's, uh, he's certainly elevating Moses appropriately. But then look at verse 39. Our fathers, our fathers, Jewish fathers, were unwilling to be obedient to Him, but repudiated Him. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Because outwardly, though they were Jews, inwardly, they were Egyptians. They were spiritual Egyptians. Their heart turned back to Egypt. And so what did they do to Moses? In verse 39. They were unwilling to be obedient to Him. They disobeyed. They repudiated Him. They mocked Him. They opposed Him. So who's doing this? The Jews are doing it to God's chosen servant, Moses. So within the nation of Israel, you have Jew on Jew. You have Jew attacking. The true spiritual Jew within the nation. The true remnant. Represented by the man of God, Moses himself. And this understand in spite of all that that generation had seen. They had seen the the ten plagues. They had seen miracle after miracle after miracle of God's grace. And delivering them from Egypt. They saw the dividing of the Red Sea. And the destruction of all the Egyptian soldiers and chariots being drowned in the Red Sea when the waters came down upon them. They saw this column of, of, of smoke by day and fire by night to lead them for those 40 years in the wilderness. They ate the manna bread that God provided miraculously every day for those 40 years, and they had water from the rock. They saw all of this. They witnessed all this. And yet at the Mount Sinai, when God had spoken the Ten Commandments, and Moses went up for God to write it down on the stone and bring it down, what did they do? What did they make? A golden cow in spite of all that they had seen, in spite of all the blessings that they had, the Jewish people turned away from God. They disobeyed and repudiated Moses. Their hearts went back to Egypt. And they made a a golden cow, which is the, the Egyptian god Hathor, and they began to worship it. They are Egyptians in spirit, though outwardly they are Jews according to the flesh. Their fathers worship idols, not God. So he picks it up in verse 40. saying They turned back in their hearts to Egypt saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's happened to him. And at that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of God. Of their hands. That's what an idol is. It's the work of your hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. God turned them over. Just like in Romans 1, when God did that to the Gentiles the, who, who made all these idols, and God turned them over. Well, God is turning this generation over to the worship of their own idols. Uh, we pick it up in, uh, in verse... 42 again, God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven as as it is written in the book of the prophets. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? For you also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Ramphah, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. So even when they came out of Egypt, after seeing the plagues and, 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 and the rescue from the avenging angel and bringing the death on the firstborn, they brought their idols with them out of Egypt. And they didn't give them up for the whole 40 years that they were in the wilderness. And that's why God now is going to judge them. And later on, He predicts that the Assyrians will come and judge Israel and then the Babylonians will come and eventually judge the, the nation of Judah in the south. So judgment is in their wings. That's the way God dealt with the Gentiles. He told Abraham, look, they're going to oppress you and enslave you for 400 years and I will judge them. And now when the, 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 the nation of Israel itself begins to persecute and reject the true spiritual remnant within them, God will judge them too. Because they've become in effect spiritual Gentiles, and have broken the covenant, they're covenant breakers, and now come under the the curses of that covenant. So we see in all of this that Stephen has been not only defending himself against the charge of you have blasphemed Moses. No, he has not. He has honored Moses. But again, the second charge is that he is broken the law of god and he had not the ones who were rebelling were the the jews against the true israel within the nation and that's why now he picks it up in verse 51 stephen does and he begins to point out the indictment of their sin the sanhedrin the ones on whom he's he's on trial before and he go he now begins to go from a lecturer to preaching and meddling. So Stephen discerns and, and this is quite an abrupt change in in his message here. And it's probably because as he's recounting the history, he begins to see the, the blood just rising up in their eyeballs. And he begins to see that they're grimacing at him because they're, they're kind of making the connection with Christ in these little veiled references to the Messiah. They're, they're getting this notion that Stephen is pointing out all of our previous sins as a, as a nation of Israel and, and rejecting Moses and Joseph and, and, and repudiating and breaking the law and being involved in idolatry. And, and that was just, it was beginning, the truth was beginning to get too close to home. And I think at that point, Stephen, who probably would have carried this forward and eventually preached Christ gloriously to them, I think he, he disrupted his, his own message and he begins to do to the, the Jews, the Sanhedrin before he is standing, just what Nathan did to David. And you remember when, when David had committed his sin with Bathsheba and then killed Uriah, her husband. And when Nathan came to him, he told this little story. And the little story is of the man who, who had a little lamb and it became like one of his children. And a neighbor came and, and, and took it and, and killed that little lamb. And after the, the story was concluded, and David was all outraged, that's not right. And then Nathan turned to him and probably stuck his finger in David's chest. And what did he say to him? Thou art the man. And that's what Stephen is now doing in the chest of the Sanhedrin. I've told you this historical story and all this evil and sin that was going on, all this disobedience going on, and and it, it ought to make you incensed. But you're the guilty ones. You're the ones who have turned away from God. Not me. You have rejected His Messiah. You have crucified Him. You're the ones who are guilty. And so he says in verse 51, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. And which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the Righteous One, the Messiah, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. You're the lawbreakers. You're the one who have turned away from God. And this isn't an, a powerful slap in the face of these self-righteous, indignant Jews. Well, look at what he says to them, starting in verse 51. You men, now he's talking to the Sanhedrin, saying, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Now, now these expressions, these Sanhedrin and the accusers of Stephen would have known well because these are the the ways that God described Israel in the Old Testament that they were stiff-necked and they were uncircumcised of heart. You can read Deuteronomy where God, you know, confronts Israel because they are stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and ears. The idea of a stiff neck comes from beasts of burdens. When uh, the owner and the farmer comes up and he has his yoke and he tries to put it on the, on the head of the, of the animal, they will stiffen up their neck and turn it away or thrust it out to prevent that yoke from going around their neck. And it's really just used as a description of the stubborn, obstinate, willful disobedience. Stiff-necked. I'm not going to bow my head in humility to you. I'm going to stiff my neck up and turn it away from you. That was the attitude that they had. They're stiff-necked, obstinate people. Their history, they've basically been that way. And then he describes them as being uncircumcised of heart and ears. You see, the, the, the rite of circumcision that God gave to Abraham was to be a symbol The circumcision of the flesh was to be a symbol of their need to have the flesh of their hearts removed. So that outward physical circumcision really became a symbol for what regeneration does. It breaks the power of the flesh. It breaks that sin nature. It it removes the dominating, enslaving power of the flesh. It removes it. So that physical circumcision was to describe symbolically what they needed. They needed their hearts changed. And obviously, uh, their uncircumcised heart and ears, unusual expression, uncircumcised ears, just basically means that they were deaf to God. They didn't want to hear God. They were unwilling to listen to God or obey God. And again, these words would ring shamefully within their ears, just like the words golden calf. The fact that they were stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and ears. See, that's why it's appropriate to say that spiritually on the inside, they're Gentiles. Because they're uncircumcised. They're circumcised outwardly in the flesh. But spiritually, they're, they're heathen at heart because their, their hearts are uncircumcised. They're Jews outwardly, but inwardly they're spiritual Gentiles. Again, they were covenant breakers and now they come under the covenant curses. Of course, to transform an uncircumcised heart into a spiritually alive circumcised heart requires the supernatural grace of God. Something that man cannot do. The reason why I cannot do it, as Jeremiah explained this even in the Old Testament, that the heart is more deceitful than all else and incurably sick. Who can understand it? And then later on in Jeremiah chapter 13 or earlier, actually, he says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So if you have an evil heart, as we all do by nature... Thank you, Adam. But if we all have an evil heart, how do we change and start being good? Well, you can make that change if you can change the color of your skin without makeup or tattooing or anything like that. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? No. Can the leopard change his spots into racing stripes? You know they look cooler. No. Then neither can you change your heart. If you're accustomed to doing evil, you can't make yourself good in God's eyes. It's impossible. Just as it's impossible for you to change uh, your skin color. Or for an animal to change the way his outward appearance is. So man cannot do it. Man cannot change his nature. That's why only God can take an uncircumcised heart and remove the power, the dominating power of the flesh and make it a living, circumcised heart. And that's why God promises that He would do to excuse me, His remnant within the nation. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. That's what God's work can do. God alone can change the heart. But sadly, the Sanhedrin, these Jewish leaders running the nation in control of all religion were men who in the eyes of God were stiff-necked and uncircumcised both in heart and in ears. And then secondly, he points out that they're always resisting the Holy Spirit. This is their perpetual character. That's also the character of Israel throughout most of its history. They resist the Holy Spirit. To resist means to continually turn away from the Holy Spirit and the Word, the Word of God, to actively oppose and fight against what the Holy Spirit is advancing. So if you're always resisting the Holy Spirit, you're always saying no to God, no to the Scriptures, no to God's prophets, no to the Word of God, and you want to do your own thing. And notice how He ends that in verse 51. You're doing just as your fathers did. Now see, here's the connection. That's why He pointed out all those elements of failures in the Old Testament. Repudiating, rejecting Joseph, rejecting Moses, turning to idolatry. And He says to the Sanhedrin, you're doing just like your fathers did throughout the whole Old Testament period. You're stiff neck, you're uncircumcised in heart and ears, and you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. That's you. That's what you're doing. And then he adds on top of that in verse 52, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. So in other words, you not only persecuted the prophets, you killed those who came and preached to you about the coming Messiah, the righteous one. That's a messianic title for the Messiah. And obviously Stephen knows his history well. He knew that they, had, you know, you look at Jezebel and you know how she tried to kill the prophets of God and throughout the history how the prophets of God were abused and mistreated, and oftentimes killed. And that's the very indictment that Jesus Himself brought up against to the Pharisees and the scribes. And Stephen is just echoing what Jesus had taught earlier. Remember in Matthew 23, Jesus said, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye build the tombs of the prophets, and adorn the monuments of the righteous.'" And say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. See, they think much better of themselves than they should. Verse chapter Matthew 23, verse 31. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you, he's talking to the, to the Jews in Jerusalem, upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel To the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So while Stephen is indicting these self-righteous, proud, arrogant Sanhedrin is that they're guilty of the same sins of their fathers throughout Jewish history where they persecute and kill the, the true seed of God, the true Israel, the prophets of God, people that really knew God where they didn't know God And they persecuted those that that truly knew God. Jeremiah they stoned. Isaiah was sawn in two. So that spiritually, the Sanhedrin, like their fathers, are following in the murderous way of Cain. You know, Jesus indicted them for shedding the righteous blood of Abel. Who did that? Cain. Spiritually, they are Cainites in their hearts. They're spiritually Egyptians. They're spiritually heathen and pagans. So it's not Stephen that's guilty of blaspheming the law and Moses. They are. And then he crescendos in verse 52, who, speaking of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become is if this is not the greatest indictment against them, not only did they murder the messengers of God who brought them prophecies about the coming Messiah, when the Messiah finally came, they murdered Him. They murdered their own Messiah. And then as a final passing charge against them in verse 53... You who received the law is ordained by angels, and yet you did not keep it. You accuse me of breaking the law. You have not kept it. Your fathers didn't. You do not keep it. So basically, Stephen has confronted them dead on with their sin. The tables have been turned. And though Stephen is on trial before men, he has now put them on trial before God. And they are the ones who have mistreated God's chosen remnant, the Israel within Israel throughout their history. Even so much so that they actually murdered their own Messiah and when the Messiah had come and replaced the temple by His own incarnation and fulfilled the law of God, they utterly rejected Him and murdered Him. And that's all that He's he's implying. This is the Nathan moment. Thou art the guilty ones. And so how do they respond? Well, verse 54, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at Him. We'll pick it up there. Uh, again, Lord willing, next time. But they respond in rage. Because Stephen has now just turned the spotlight back upon their guilt and away from himself. And they don't like it, not one little bit. Let me kind of wrap this up with a couple of uh, lessons or observations. The first is that one of the things that Stephen is pointing out is that you can have great spiritual privileges and it does not guarantee a, a godly faith. Israel had all of that. They had the covenant with Abraham and Moses and David and the promises of the new covenant. They, they had the law of God. They had the, the temple of God. They had the sacrificial system. All that pointed, should point them to Christ. They had all this great blessing from God. The appearances of God. The miracles of God. The wonders of God. The deliverances and salvation of God through, out of Egypt. They had, they had all of that. And even though they had all of that, their hearts were spiritually dead and rebellion against God. They even had the Sanhedrin before whom Stephen is preaching even had the very presence of Jesus Christ in their midst. How many times did they hear Christ preaching in the temple compound? Walking by, hearing Him, and immediately began to thinking He was a false prophet. They had the Son of God. They had their Messiah walking in their midst with an opportunity to learn from Him and listen to Him. And in all of that... They still rebelled against God. They had all of these incredible privileges. They just did not have a godly faith at all. I think the lesson for us from that today is that you cannot assume that because you're surrounded by the goodness and the blessings and the benefits of God that that means you have a right standing with Him just because you're surrounded with the Holy Bible and carry it with you, and you might even open it at times, and just because you're around the holy saints of God who love Christ, and just because you're surrounded by the opportunities of holy worship and coming here on the Lord's Day and we worship God together, that you can have all of that And countless more benefits and blessings that God showers upon you every day. And you can be in rebellion against God in your heart. You can be uncircumcised of heart and ears. You can be as stiff-necked as was Israel and the Sanhedrin. And that's why the author of Hebrews can describe professing believers as those who once were enlightened They had tasted of the heavenly gift of the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come. They had become partakers of the Holy Spirit in some outward external way. And yet, they really never knew God. And they eventually fell away from God being impossible to renew them to repentance again. Just because you're surrounded by good and godly things doesn't mean that you have a good standing before the Lord. Let us not grow accustomed to having so often the truth of Scripture proclaimed, and yet we hear it, but we become hearers of the Word and not doers of the Word. Let us beware so that we don't grow accustomed that we're surrounded with all these holy blessings and the Word of God so that our hearts are no longer moved by them. Or our emotions are no longer stirred by them. Or our minds are no longer stimulated by God's truth to respond in a desire to live more for Jesus Christ. Because it's so easy to get in that situation. It's so easy to come in and hear the Word of God regularly every week and to read the Bible on your own, but to not be transformed by it. To not be impacted by it. And then we become to grow spiritually stagnant. And we wonder why God seems so far away from us. And it's we've had people in this church that eventually have left because their hearts have grown cold to the things of God. And they no longer worship the God they claimed they once worshipped. Surrounded by all these holy benefits and privileges. And they did not benefit from them. They turned away from the Lord. And I think ancient Israel teaches us that, that we need to, to take heed. You who think that you stand lest you fall. And as Paul told the Corinthians, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or you do not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. See, the Sanhedrin as well as their fathers throughout the history of Israel had a spiritual problem. They were not seeking God's righteousness. They were seeking their own. The Holy Spirit had convicted them of their sin, but they resisted that conviction and and sought to just, well, we'll just do better. We can establish our own righteousness. And of course, that's chasing the wind. For all their righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of God. See, Israel had become puffed up with pride. Pride in their doctrine. Pride in where they worshiped. Pride in all of the outward stuff that that drew their hearts, but they did not know God. They had a puffed up pride in in their religion, but they did not know the Lord. And yet the Sanhedrin were absolutely confident that having the temple and having the law and being able to worship at, at the only place in all the world where God is, is there at the temple. And God isn't anywhere else. He's there at the temple. They they were so proud of all that. They were so puffed up by it that they were absolutely confident that that guaranteed them heaven when they died. Convinced of their own special standing before God, they were totally deceived. It's like the man standing on the Titanic while it's tilting and sinking into the water, holding on to the rail, and yet absolutely confident that he is safe and secure as if he's standing on solid ground. That was the Jews. And how many people today have their trust in the same spiritual Titanic? That, oh, I'm good enough. Oh, I'm surrounded by a godly father and mother, siblings, and I go to a good church, and I have the Bible, and it's read to me. And, we do... and they think, well, I must be a good Christian. No, you must personally individually repent of your sin and come to the only One who can forgive you of your sins and give you His own righteousness. And that is the Righteous One, Jesus Christ. And until you do that, you're no different than a spiritual Gentile. You're basically a heathen at heart regardless of all the holy things that are surrounding your life, you must come to Christ if you want to be truly delivered and saved. You see, the only hope for people like these Sanhedrin and people like their forefathers is to repent of their own self-righteousness, their own idolatry, their own distortion of the law of God and admit their sin. Admit their rebellion. Admit that they've been resisting the Holy Spirit. And abandon their own efforts to become righteous in the sight of God. And come to Christ the Righteous One who alone can give them God's righteousness as a free gift based on faith alone as the only righteousness that is able to get them to heaven. They need to stop trusting in the sacrifices of the temple. The blood of the animals which can never take away sin. And turn to the true Lamb of God who can take away your sin. I love how Isaac Watts expressed it in one of his great hymns when he said, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ the heavenly Lamb takes all our sins away A sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Well said. So don't just trust in your external religious privileges. Only a personal relationship with Christ will save a sinner from hell. And the last application I think we can draw from this is beware of resisting the Holy Spirit. Again, to resist means to actively oppose and fight against the Holy Spirit and His Word. To refuse to be led by the Spirit or be guided by the Spirit because we want our own way. I don't care what God's way is, I'm committed to me and myself and my desires and my wants. And the opposite of resisting the Holy Spirit is to yield to the Spirit, to submit to His control to be led by the Spirit. When our hearts desire God's will more than our own will, so that we humbly yield to the leading of the Spirit. When I was a kid, I grew up out in the country. We had a couple of horses, Shorty and Brownie. And uh, there were times as a young kid, I'd saddle up Shorty and go for a ride out in our pasture. And uh, Shorty, though had a reputation. He or she, don't even know what she was, uh, had a mind of of his own. And one day when uh, when I had saddled up Shorty to go for a ride out in the pasture, I don't know, I was maybe 10 or something like that, that everything was going well until Shorty decided that he had had enough of carrying this little pike on his back And he was ready to call it a day and head back to the barn. So I began to turn around and and, uh, and start heading back to the barn. And of course, I pulled on the reins because I wanted that horse to go the way I wanted him to go. But he was stiff-necked and lunged his head down and forward and pulled the reins out of my hands. Well, at that point, when he realized that there was nothing restricting him in any way, he started a full run back to the barn. I mean, this horse was galloping like his life depended on it. And of course, as he's galloping back to the barn, I'm being jostled all around. I've got to hold on to the horn of the saddle so I don't fall off the the, the horse. And on on the way back, I know what he's doing. He's heading back straight into the barn because that's what he would always do. And I just envision in my mind, if He ever got me in the barn, He's going to trample me and then eat me alive. <laughs> so right on the, over the door of going into the barn, we had a strategic two-by-four nailed. And so I'd grab hold of the 2 before 4 and launch off the horse where He got, it, got me in the barn and kill me. But we're like that horse sometimes. And Christ is the rider through the Holy Spirit. And when we resist the leading, when we pull against the reins of the Spirit, and we resist the Spirit, sometimes God will let us do what we want to do. Now, God is sovereign. Spirit is sovereign. Works efficaciously. But sometimes the Spirit of God says, okay, you don't want to go the way I want you to go. I'll let you go the way that you want to go. And when that happens, we usually end up making a mess out of our lives when we resist the Spirit and also grieve the Spirit. So when the Spirit prompts us to pray, we stiffen out our necks and keep our thoughts on the matters at hand because I don't want to be distracted by praying for that person that the Lord brought to my mind right now because I've got other things I need to concentrate on. And we resist the Spirit of God. Or when the Spirit reminds us to spend time in the Word of God, that we resist the leading and lunge our heads forward and downward. For we just have too many other pressing things going on in my life. I'm too busy. These other things are more important. And uh, we just don't have the time. And we are resisting the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit impresses on our minds to do good to others and to consider others as more important than ourselves and to serve other people, well, then again, we resist the Holy Spirit's impressions because we're consumed with our own worldly and selfish concerns, which are more important. And we turn our heads and we gallop toward our own barns our own desires and we grieve the spirit and we resist the spirit and he is grieved because we show that we love worldly things more than we love Christ. See, we need to learn to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit through his word so that when he pulls back on the reins gently we feel the tug and it's, and it's a sign don't keep going that direction. Stop. Stop the words. Stop the actions. Pull back. Zip it. Stop. And we're sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit as He reminds us that scripturally, if I keep on going, that's going to be a sin. When the Spirit of God nudges us forward, to move ahead in prayer and, and time in the Word of God and in serving others and, 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 and we respond to that, then we're being sensitive. We're being under the control of the Spirit of God. Or when He puts a slight pressure on the reins to turn us from the direction we're going into another direction, either to the right or to the left, that we sense that God is leading us that way. Maybe it's not the way I want to go. I want to go this way. But the Spirit of God, and through the illumination of the Word of God, He begins to put a little pressure on the right side to turn us over here. And we're sensitive to that. And we began to desire to want to go in His direction, even if it's not the direction I want to go in. Because I trust Him. And I know that His ways are always best. And it may lead somewhere where I don't want to go. But I know that God is good. And God will lead me in the good ways. And I trust Him. And I submit. And, I, and the Spirit of God has control. He has the reins. And this is what it means to... To walk in the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit. To be led by the Spirit. When we're sensitive to the leading of the Spirit of God through the Scriptures. Israel was not that. The Sanhedrin was not that. They were resisting the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we do that as well, don't we? I think we can all sense times in our lives when... When we, when we resist and we rebel against the leading of the Spirit and the Word of God. And I think what we learn from them is don't be like the Sanhedrin. But rather be like Stephen. Because Stephen was a man who was under the control of the Holy Spirit. He's described as being full of the Holy Spirit several times in the book of Acts. He was willing to speak the hard truth of, of God to those who didn't want to hear it. He was a man who studied the Word of God and knew Scripture. He knew the Word of God. And he was willing to be mocked and, and scorned and even hated by those who rejected Christ. He was even willing to endure persecution and willing to sacrifice himself for the Gospel of Christ and even to lose his life. That's what it means to be full of the Spirit, following the Spirit, with Christ in control, sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And his witness, Stephen's witness, lives on in Scripture as a permanent testimony of a man who contrary to the Sanhedrin and contrary to the Jewish leadership throughout Israel's history, he did not resist the Holy Spirit. But he was a man full of the Holy Spirit. And this is what his life looks like. He was under the control of the Spirit of God. And next time we'll look and see how a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit dies and brings glory to God. But in conclusion... We're not to be like the Sanhedrin, who had all these religious advantages but were stone cold, spiritually dead, resisting the Spirit of God, but were to be like Stephen, a man yielded to the Spirit, a man who is under the control of the Spirit of God and glorified God greatly through that. What kind of religion do you have this morning? Let's close in prayer. Our Father God, we we do thank You for filling Stephen and inspiring him to preach such a, a powerful sermon and such boldness. Not afraid to call a sin a sin. Not afraid to confront the most powerful Jews in all the nation and dress them down for their own disobedience for their own sin, for their own idolatry. And Lord, we know that Stephen's heart was to communicate the gospel to them. And before he was able, no doubt, to fully complete his sermon, he was rushed upon and stoned and killed. But Lord, he leaves for us a godly example of someone who lived under the control of the Spirit. And we but ask, dear Lord, in all of our struggles, being surrounded with all of the holy privileges with which we have around us, let us not become like the Sanhedrin who resist the Spirit of God, who never come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. But rather, Lord, help us to be like Stephen, a man whose heart wanted to please his Savior. And may that be found in us as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.